Jeremiah chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 15, where they ashamed when they had committed abomination. No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. And in verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth. Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people and the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friends shall perish. Thus says the Lord, behold, a people comes from the north country and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea and they ride on horses as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way. Because of the sword of the enemy, fear is on every side. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation. For the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people. That you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. In Jeremiah chapter 6, God, by the prophet Jeremiah, issues a series of warnings to the city of Jerusalem and to the inhabitants of Judea. The warnings, remember, are to provide a means of security and preparation and protection. That's what a warning is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you a heads up so that you'll go in the right direction. 
The book of Jeremiah began with a series of indictments against the people of Judah and Jerusalem in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, there was a series of pleas to repent in chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 4. There was a declaration of the terrifying day of judgment, chapter 4, and verse 5 through 31. And then the search, remember, that Jeremiah went to find one single righteous person. One individual, one person, one godly human being who would follow hard after God in chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. And the search proved futile. Now it's time for God to issue a final warning. The prophet says, flee from Jerusalem in verses 1 through 8. Glean the remnant of Israel in verses 9 through 15. Do not trust in the emptiness of ceremonial religion in verses 16 through 21. Beware an enemy that's coming from the north in verses 20 through to 26. And Jeremiah's role to declare the word of God, to act as a prophet and an overseer. And now he's also assigned the duty of being an assayer, a person who weighs precious metals. Oswald Chambers wrote, Obedience to the call of Christ nearly always costs everything to two people. The one who is called and the one who loves that one. The moment you're called by God to in a singular fashion love Him and serve Him And be his servant. You're almost certainly going to estrange everybody else who is around you. God gave Jeremiah a call, a message, a vision. And when God gives a vision or a call to ministry, almost certainly at least three things will always result. Obedience to the call and the vision. Opposition to the call and the vision. And there might be times when you are the only person who understands what it is that God has called you to do and asked you to do and obey. Thus far in in the chapter, the warnings have included flee for safety. The second warning, God will destroy the city. In fact, Jerusalem has been likened to a daughter. The judgment is certain because the city is filled with oppression. The city pours out wickedness, violence and destruction. The warning, the people must repent or else God will turn away and make the land desolate. The warning that the judgment will be thorough. The people will be judged time and time again. The warning that the people's ears are closed to the word of God. The people are offended by the word of God. They find no pleasure in the word of God. God, the warning about the wrath of God will fall on human beings without partiality. Every man, every woman, every child, the rich, the poor, the elderly, houses, property, wives will be plundered and conquered because the people lived lives of greed and because the spiritual leaders, the prophets and the priests were deceptive. They ignored God's word. They preached peace instead of Turning from your sin. They refused righteousness. And the moment that they rejected God and they rejected God's word and they rejected righteousness. They embraced judgment. And the people weren't ashamed of their sinful conduct. 
And so the last three warnings in this last part of the chapter, the people in the nations are at a crossroad in verse 16. The people are rejecting and refusing to listen to the watchmen. Those are the prophets of God. The nations of the earth, as the final warning, should pay attention to the fact that God was willing to judge his own people, the covenant community, even though they rejected God and they rejected God's word and they rejected God's law and they rejected God's commandments and they and their worship proved unacceptable because it was filled with hypocrisy. And so, verse 16, it says, Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, that you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah is using a vivid image of a traveler Who's going the right way and who's going the right direction, but gets distracted and finds himself off the beaten path, off the proven road. I don't know if you've ever been on a trip or a journey and you had a pretty good idea of where you needed to go. But for whatever reason, you turned off to get gas or you turned off to get food or you turned off in order to try and do something. And all of a sudden you got turned around. You were going the right way, but then all of a sudden you lost your way. And that's the point that he's making. The Lord is issuing another warning. You're at a crossroads, he says to the nation and to the city of Jerusalem. And then he outlines the need. Seek the old proven path of righteousness. And then he outlines the promise. You will find rest for your souls. And then their refusal and rejection. You know, Carolyn, when she was leading in worship and she was singing songs and there was a point in her prayer where she quoted Matthew chapter 11 verses 29 and 30. You'll remember Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Do you realize he's quoting Jeremiah? He's quoting this prophet. By the way, it's not plagiarism when you wrote it. Jesus, centuries before, through the Holy Spirit, stirred Jeremiah's heart. But make no mistake about it. God, in the centuries past, was inviting the children of Judah and Jerusalem to take the yoke of Jehovah to take the yoke of God upon themselves because he, his, his burden was easy and light. In Deuteronomy 32, 7, Moses wrote, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. Maybe some of you grew up in a Christian home. What a privilege. I didn't have that privilege. I think every family has one person who begins a brand new moment. Abraham left paganism and became a follower of the true and living God. 
You might have had the privilege of having a mother and a father who loved the Lord or grandparents who loved the Lord. And maybe you didn't grow up under those circumstances, but you have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of your children and your grandchildren. But maybe you've gotten off the beaten path and you've gone in a different direction. The prophet Hosea warned the people they made idols for their own destruction in Hosea chapter 8, verse 4. The moment they began to fabricate their own gods and goddesses, what they were doing is they were forging and forming the elements of their own destruction. And so. Jeremiah says, also, I set a watchman over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. And notice this is about participation in verse 16. It says, stand in the way and see. The idea is you are involved in a journey and you're going on the path. And now he says, listen to the sound of the trumpet. In other words, there is an active participation that he invites the people to enter into. And he issues this warning of the watchmen. In this case, the watchmen are the prophets sent by God to warn the people. And so the moment he says, listen to the sound of the trumpet, he is inviting them to listen carefully to the warning blast. That says you're going in the wrong way. You're going in the wrong direction. By the way, that's who the watchmen were. In this case, the watchmen are the prophets who have been sent by God in order to warn the people. And this, the watchmen go all the way back to the time way before the flood. The Lord sent Noah to warn the people of a coming flood. The Lord sent prophets to warn the people about the Assyrians and the Babylonians. In the New Testament, Book of Revelation, Jesus warns the local churches. He is the prophet warning them. Paul wrote of the believers opportunity to evaluate their own lives rather than risk judgment by God. And in first Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 31, Paul writes, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You know what that means? If you take the time to examine your own heart and the circumstances of your life and where you're at with God and where you're at in your walk with God and the direction that God wants you to go. You don't have to worry. You can come to a message of judgment and sit there and go, I'm good. The Lord has already showed me the direction that I need to go. The Lord has already included in his evaluation, some of the things that need to change and be different about my life. But look what it says. We will not listen. They refuse to hear the watchman. The Bible records and illustrates time and time again. When Christians refuse to evaluate their own heart. Every once in a while, God will step in and judge. One of those stories is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Many of you are familiar with the story, how the church was alive and growing and people were participating and, and they were giving and providing for one another and supporting one another and encouraging one another. And you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, how they lied to the Holy Spirit and they pretended 
to give everything when only they'd only given a part of the thing. And by the way, their, their sin wasn't that they didn't give everything. The sin was that they lied about their participation. And you'll remember Ananias was struck dead and then Sapphira was struck dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, Paul, speaking to the Christians, even in the early growing church, said, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. He was talking about observing the Lord's table. And people were living a life of rebellion and sin and disobedience, and they really weren't honoring God. But over and over again, the Bible speaks of judgment in the past that God has done. Judgment in the present, if, we'll, if we're willing to evaluate our lives. But the Bible also speaks of a future judgment seat of Christ, known as the Bema seat for believers. In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, there's a reoccurring theme, and that is Christian, Christian, Christian. Your life matters. Your life is important. Who you are and what you do matters. And even though you may not sense it right now, but there is going to come a point when your life is going to come to a dramatic and abrupt halt. And you'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you will give an account of your life. Of every moment. Of every day. And remember, you have this great privilege. The great privilege has been extended to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday when I said, guess what, Christian? You're allowed to do everything that Jesus says is okay for you to do. And you're prohibited from doing anything that Jesus has asked you not to do. No wonder the New Testament apostle said, look, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it all to the glory of God. It's not wrong for you to have a party and to have a celebration. It's not wrong for you to love your children and your grandchildren. It's not wrong for you to enjoy all of the things that God has given freely. You have a wonderful privilege and a great opportunity. The Bible speaks of a future tribulational judgment upon man's religious system in Revelation chapter 17. There's going to be a tribulational judgment upon man's economic and political systems in Revelation chapter 18. The book of Revelation speaks of a future judgment on man's military systems in Revelation 19. The book of Revelation speaks of a tribulational judgment on human beings individually and corporately in Revelation chapter 6, in Revelation chapter 8, in Revelation chapter 9, in Revelation chapter 16. You're probably wondering, why does the Bible devote so much time warning us? <laughs> I think that there's good reason. And there's a clue, a hint given in verse 18. Another warning, therefore, hear Goim nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. The warning is extended to all the peoples of the earth. And what is that warning? God is willing to judge his people. If God is willing to judge his people, how severe will the judgment be to those who are not his people? And so that's why the New Testament says judgment begins in the house of God. I know that some of you think, I know somebody who should hear this message. 
and you're upset because the seat next to you is empty. You know what? I'm content for you to hear the message. I'm here. I'm content for you to say, I'm listening. Lord, if you're trying to tell me something, give me the ability to hear and respond. If God is willing to judge his people, Jesus warned of a judgment on the nations. He used the illustration of sheep and goats in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Again, the book of Revelation speaks of a judgment on the Antichrist, a judgment on a false prophet in Revelation 19, a judgment on Satan in the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and then a judgment on Satan in the lake of fire forever in Revelation chapter 20. God is willing to judge his children. His friends, his enemies. And so in verse 19, it says, Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. Now think about what you're reading. Hear, O earth. That means anyone willing to listen, listen. I will bring calamity on this people. Which people? The people of Jerusalem and Judah because of their persistent commitment to rebel against God. The fruit of their thoughts. What is the fruit of their thoughts? I want you to think about this for just a moment. In their minds, they were thinking, it can't happen to me. It can't happen to us. You probably know someone. Maybe you yourself have thought at some moment in your life. It doesn't really matter what I do. God understands. God is a good God. God is a gracious God. God is a wonderful God. God knows about my frailties. God knows about my faults. God knows about my hypocrisy and my inconsistency and my failure. And it doesn't really matter. But you know what the fruit of their thoughts is? It does matter. Remember in the New Testament, God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also they shall reap. Because they have not heeded my words. Apparently, not listening matters. Nor my law. These are the instructions. Did they accept it? No, they rejected it. And so we can ask and answer the question, why is the judgment coming in verse 19? Because the people of God have rejected God's word. They've rejected God's law. They've rejected God's commandments. Do you think that there's an application on the individual life and the life of a nation or the life of a civilization? Do you suppose that you as a Christian, if you reject God's word, if you reject God's instructions, that there won't be consequences? Do you suspect that corporately when a country gets together and says, you know what, the Bible isn't true and God's word doesn't matter? That there's not a downward spiral that is going to take place as people distance themselves? Does God expect people to heed his words? And, you know, when we were singing earlier and we said the mountains shout and the, the sun is raging, it's all for you. Remember when you were singing that? You know, we sing that, but sometimes we don't. I, 
I suspect that we're not really thinking about what we're singing. When we sing songs like that, here's what we're singing. The earth exists for God. The sun exists for God. The solar system exists for God. The universe exists for God. Now, think about that for just a moment. That means everything in it exists for him. The air that you're breathing and the chair that you're sitting on, the job that you go to, the stuff that you're involved in, every nuance of all of existence and reality exists to glorify God. But remember, some of your family and some of your friends and certainly most of your neighbors don't exist that or don't believe that. If you said to your a family member or a neighbor, if you said, hey, why do you suppose the sun exists? They might say, well, you know, it exists because, uh, you know, the Big Bang occurred and matter scattered all over the universe and hot gases began to coalesce and coagulate. And then all of a sudden combustion took place and a great burning globe began to exist. And for what reason does it exist? No reason. What would happen if the sun didn't exist? Well, there would be no other existence because the planet Earth is dependent upon the sun, the plants and chlorophyll, and you couldn't eat. But so why do plants exist? No reason. Why do animals exist? No reason. Why do you exist? Well, I've been taught from an early age that I don't exist for any particular reason. But that's not true. The Bible says you exist because God loves you and he has always loved you. He planned for you. He prepared you and everything about you. Does God expect people to heed his words? Apparently, if the Bible is true, he does. Does God even expect the unbelieving populations to heed him? Over and over again, the declaration of the prophets are the sun understands why it exists. The mountains understand why they exist. The oceans understand why they exist. But people wander around as if God doesn't matter. And so in verse 20, it says, for what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and what and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Remember the fruit of their thoughts. The fruit of their thoughts is who I am and what I do doesn't matter. The fruit of their thoughts are we're Jews. We're God's chosen people. The fruit of their thoughts are we're living in Jerusalem. The temple is here. Certainly God wouldn't judge his chosen people and he wouldn't destroy his chosen city because this is the place where God reveals himself. And so God's response is, for what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country. The people of Jerusalem believed that they worshiped God and they believed that their worship was sacrificial and costly. When it says, for what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba, they would use the oils and the incense and the perfumes from Sheba. And they were very, very expensive. My wife loves um, that Elizabeth Taylor perfume. I think it's called White Diamonds. When I was a kid growing up, my mother loved Chanel Number no. 5. Now, if you go to Dillard's or you go somewhere and you get a little three-ounce bottle of perfume, 
For some women, can a three-ounce bottle of perfume cost hundreds of dollars? Is such a thing even possible? Can you spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars for perfume? And guess what? These people would pay the equivalent of a week's wage, a month's wage, even a year's wage to get this special frankincense. And sweet cane from a far country. The sweet cane refers to the spices that were used in the sacrificial offerings in the temple. And I believe that this far country that's being made reference to in verse 20, I suspect that the country that's here spoken of might be India. And the point The outskirts of the known world, they would take that which was most precious. They would take that which was most valuable. And see, that's part of the point. The point was, you don't understand how much it costs me. You don't understand how much of my livelihood and how much of my income I give to the church or I give to God. Certainly that counts for something. I mean, if I give... Tens of thousands of dollars every year. If I give to the poor, if I give to the needy, if I give to the homeless, certainly that matters, right? And God says, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how sacrificial or how expensive your worship is. If you're living a life of hypocrisy. If you're living a life of inconsistency. Well, sure, I struggle and sure, I have problems. But at least I go to church and at least I read my Bible and at least I give every once in a while. No, worship has to be in spirit and in truth through the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship God. Yes, we worship God through reading the Bible and studying and teaching God's word. We worship the Lord through preaching God's word and keeping God's word. We worship the Lord through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, through singing songs and prayers and intercessions and supplications with praise and thanksgiving. We worship the Lord through receiving and believing in the Son of God, Jesus, through the sacrifice of our body, through the sacrifice of praise, through the demonstration of our love to one another, through sacrificial giving, believing, participating in the lives of our neighbors and friends. But none of it matters at all. If your heart is empty and wicked, And you just simply come to church as an exercise in duty and obligation. That's what the Bible is saying. That's what the Lord means when he says your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Nor your sacrifices sweet to me. The only worship that really matters is the worship that's motivated by a sincere love of the Lord Jesus Christ and a willingness to place Jesus at the center of your life. And so he talks about the certainty of judgment in verse 21. Look what it says. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Behold, I will lay a stumbling blocks before the people and the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friends shall perish. Jeremiah continues the theme of judgment. But I want you to understand something. Even though he's continuing the theme of judgment, the emphasis now is going to subtly shift as the Lord begins to think about the role 
in the ministry of Jeremiah himself. So what are the stumbling blocks that God places before the people? In this case, it's the Babylonian army. The army will come down from the north. The people will trip. They will fall before the onslaught of the invading army. In verse 22, thus says the Lord, behold, a people comes from the north country and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. I suspect that verse 22 has has a historical prophetic fulfillment in the actual Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. In 600 B.C., the country of Babylon is poised to take over what you and I would call Syria, Lebanon, the northern part of Israel, and now the southern part of Israel. And then when it says, and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth, I'm going to suggest to you that this mobilization takes place as Babylon begins to recruit soldiers From the known world. And it says in verse 23. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and they have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. When I was preparing this message, I almost asked James to get one of those sound effects of of the waves crashing. You know, if you've ever been next to the beach and you hear the waters roar and the waves crash. It says they ride horses as men of war set an array against you, O daughter of Zion. What do we learn from the invading army or the prophecy that he gives? Number one, the enemy is equipped with weapons of destruction. Number two, the soldiers are cruel and ruthless without remorse and without mercy. Number three, the soldiers will practice torture. And by the way, In the time of the Babylonian invasion in the 6th century, often when the invading army would come in, you know what they would do? They would sever the hands and feet of the people as they would invade the territory. The soldiers would practice torture. In order to get information, they would cut hands and arms and noses. They would literally take hot irons and they would melt the people's eye sockets. They would cause the, 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 the viscous portion of the eye to pop. They would pierce the body with spears. They would hang the body as a lesson to enemy soldiers. They would severely whip people and then they would beat them until they died. Then they would chop their heads off and then they would boil them in oil and then they would create a pyramid of skulls. The whole point? To create terror. To completely terrorize your enemy. I was talking about a person in the school shooting that took place in the Middle East, in Chechnya, where a group of rebels took over a gymnasium and they basically put the adults on one side of the wall and they put the children on the other side of the wall and then they lined up the children according to weight and size and then they took the adults and they chopped their heads off and then they made the children take the bodies of their teachers and parents by the legs and drag their headless body across the gymnasium. 
for one purpose and one purpose only. To create an atmosphere of sheer terror and fear and subjugation. Why do you think that this is important and why do you suppose it's included? Jeremiah is going to record the response of the people to the invading armies. That's what you're reading in verse 24. We have heard the report of it. Look, read it for yourself. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. He's recording the responses of the people to the invading army. How do they react? Weakness, anguish, terror, helplessness, pain. The kind of pain that a woman experiences when she's giving birth to a child. And it's hard, ladies, to communicate that kind of pain if you've never felt it, isn't it? And I'm talking about unmedicated. I'm talking about the kind of pain that causes every molecule in your body to quiver. Why do you think this is important for you as a Christian? Because do we have the same kind of an enemy, an enemy who knows no boundaries, an enemy who is willing to do whatever it takes to isolate you and terrify you? The point. These people. They will be helpless. They will have no way to defend themselves. You've probably been in at least one or two situations in your life, a situation where you were threatened and you could do something about it. And you were threatened and you had absolutely no control. There was nothing that you could do to help yourself. That's the point that he's making. And that's the picture that even Jesus paints in the New Testament as he talks about a judgment to come, as he talks about punishment, as he gives a description of hell. Jesus describes hell as a place of unquenchable fire in Matthew 3:12, in Matthew 13:41, in Mark chapter 9 verse 43. He describes hell as a place of memory and remorse in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31 in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. He talks about the place of final Judgment as described in terms of thirst in Luke 16:24, a place of misery and pain, Revelation 14:10, a place of frustration and anger in Matthew 13:42, a place of permanent exile and separation in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 20, verse 6, and verse 15. It's a, a situation where the judgment comes and now you have no control over what's about to happen. Jeremiah goes so far as to say, do not go out into the field nor walk by the way. Beware or because of the sword of the enemy, fear is on every side. The point that Jeremiah is making is when this invasion takes place, there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. The idea being you're in Jerusalem, you're running for your life. You go to the north because you think that you can escape, but your enemy is already there. You go to the east and they're there. You go to the west and they're there. You go to the south and they're there. All of the places where you thought you could run, all of the places where you thought you could hide, all of the places that you thought that you could be safe, they're gone. 
Historically, are we talking about an invasion of Babylon, of Judea? Yes. And Jerusalem? Yes. But what does this mean to you? And what does this mean to me? The Bible says that judgment for the Christian has already taken place in the cross of Calvary. There is a place where you can hide. It's called Jesus. It's the place of his sacrifice and the place of his death. If you were ever wondering, how will I ever be able to face God? How will I ever be able to give an explanation of my life and my heart and who I am and what I've done? How could I ever convince God to take me, to love me, to save me? That's the whole point of the gospel and of the New Testament, that that's exactly what Jesus is willing to do. But for the person who refuses the mechanism that God has ordained, there is no place to run. There is no place to hide. The picture that Jeremiah is painting is that the enemy is ready to capture you and to slaughter you. But in Jesus, we're given a way of escape. We're given a way out. And so he records in verse 26, O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth, roll about in ashes, make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. There's a sense of grief. There's a sense of mourning. There's a sense of overwhelming sorrow. As the invading army comes in, the people grieve and weep and lament. And the picture that Jeremiah paints is like a family that loses its only son. In other words, imagine you said to a person, I'm my father's only son and I have only one son. And that when my son dies, our memory will be extinguished from the face of the planet of the earth. Many Jewish families would have their names cut off, extinguished forever. Because of the people's horrible sins. That's why you hear over and over again in the New Testament the pictures and the metaphors of speech when people talk about how your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is written in a place where it will never be forgotten. Your name, your identity, the reality of who you are and why you are and why you're important is forever inscribed in a book that God has created. So that you will always be remembered. But for these people. Remember these people. Because of the repeated, repeated wickedness, the repeated sin, the repeated rebellion, the refusal to repent. And in verse 27, the Lord says, I've set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. Jeremiah is a prophet. Jeremiah is a spokesperson. Jeremiah is a watchman. But now Jeremiah is called to test the spiritual condition of Judah in Jerusalem. The Hebrew word translated assayer is bakon. There's two Hebrew words. One is 
Bakun, which is tower, and Bakon, which is Aser. I think that this is the right translation because of the imagery that's being used. An assayer is a person who would take metals and separate base metal from precious metal. The word translated their way that you may know and test their way is the same word that's translated paths or roads in verse 16. Remember earlier where it says stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. This is the direction, a firm direction. And, and he, he writes, OK, I'm going to make you an assayer. And he says, OK, here's what I've discovered. They are all stubborn rebels. Walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. Now, listen carefully. The Lord lists his reasons for sending Jeremiah the prophet. The prophet's preaching was meant to test the people. And what is the test supposed to reveal? It's to expose their heart. It's to expose their sin. So when Jeremiah tests their character... He's reporting their findings, rebellion, slander, corruption. And then he switches to mining terms, bronze, iron. Remember, if you've ever panned for gold or if you've ever went on, a, on an adventure looking for precious metals, you will sometimes break up the rock so you can find that which is precious. When he says they are all stubborn rebels, this is this is an intensive stubborn rebels is a, is a Hebrew idiom. It means. How can I say it? Rebel of rebels. Imagine you've got a group of rebellious people and you say, which one of you is the ringleader? Who is the person who's leading the pack? That's what he's talking about. They are stubborn rebels. These people aren't just rebellious. These are the people who are enlisting other people in the rebellion. They are bronze and they are iron. It's used, by the way, of animals who refuse to be broken. It's used of children who insist on disobeying their parents in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18. And the word slanderers is a reference to the Eighth Commandment, where people say things that just simply aren't true. They're evil speaking. The people were to understand that they were stubborn rebels who continually slandered. And listen carefully. They slandered the name of God. In other words, they spoke evil about God. How do you speak evil about God? Does the Bible say that God is good? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, that's a pretty easy question. God is good. So when a person suggests that God is evil, that's slander, isn't it? When a person says God is wicked, God is evil, God is unfair, God is unjust. God is unfeeling. God is uncompassionate. God is insensitive. God doesn't care. That's what it's talking about. That's why I always encourage people. 
when they say, you know, I think if God is a good God, then why does he make evil? And I'm all for asking questions. And I'm I think it's important to ask questions. And I think it's important to find answers to difficult questions. But you are crossing a dangerous line. When you begin to accuse God of impurity and wickedness and sinfulness. The people of Judea and the people of Jerusalem were were not only guilty of being corrupt, they were guilty of leading other people in the corruption. And so the bronze and the iron are the base metals. The, the picture that Jeremiah is pointing is, imagine you can get everyone in Jerusalem and you could put them in a fire-burning pit and you could melt them down into their essence. Can you find even one thing that is precious, one thing that is good, one thing that is valuable? Bronze and iron are a reference to the character of the people inferior, not precious. Verse 29, the bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain for the wicked are not drawn off. Here's the picture. Base metals are thrown into the fire and they're consumed by the, the flame. The people are so wicked they refuse to be cleansed from their impurities. In other words, the idea is you're put into a position or into a circumstance where you are tested and tried because you're looking for something beautiful. You're looking for something precious. You're looking for something valuable. The people are supposed to be like gold. They're supposed to be like silver, but like ore that holds out hope that something precious is inside. Jeremiah discovers that there's nothing there. Surely there's an ounce of goodness. Surely there's a particle of goodness. But no matter how much fire... No matter how much discipline, the wickedness couldn't be separated. Like the impurities in the gold and the silver ore, Jeremiah notes the refining process has not succeeded in removing the wickedness or the wicked from the people. We're in the process of discipline right now. How's that going? You know, we're working on it. We're hoping that if we discipline in this particular area, the mouth will change. The heart will change. The behavior will change. Have you ever tried to discipline somebody and they refuse to change? Maybe that was you. There was a word that my teachers used to use to describe me. Incorrigible. Do you know what that word means? It means not subject to change. We stand them in the corner. Doesn't work. We beat them with a stick. Doesn't work. We isolate them. Doesn't work. What do you suppose will get young Gino Geraci to understand that he can't throw dirt clods at his fellow classmates? What will it take to get him to change? And that's what's happening with Jeremiah. What will it take 
In ancient mining, gold or silver to be refined was mixed with lead, and then it was placed in a crucible that was made from bone ash or earth. You may not think any of this is interesting, but part of the imagery that he's talking about is how gold and silver were isolated and separated in the ancient world. When this was melted, a blast of air, oxygen, was directed against the molten metal. The lead oxidized and it acted as a flux to carry off the base metals, leaving the gold and leaving the silver. In the illustration that Jeremiah has given, we have two sets of bellow. One is fanning a flame and the other is directing at the molten metal and there's still nothing there I know someone who works for one of the largest gold mining companies in the world and he tells me that a rich mine a rich mine contains just a few tenths of an ounce of gold for every ton of ore that they mine a not so promising gold mine will have hundreds of an ounce Per ton, the mining watchdog group Earthworks estimated that a standard 18 karat gold wedding band, a wedding, a plain gold wedding band on your finger, you have to mine 20 tons of gold ore to just simply produce the ring on your finger. So how much of humanity has to be crushed and broken before we find one little sliver of gold? And in verse 30 it says people will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. In verse 30, these are some of the most difficult, dark words in all of the scripture. Because the Lord has rejected them. Why? Why has the Lord rejected them? Refuse to repent. Refuse to listen. Refuse to believe. Refuse to receive. Refuse, refuse, refuse. Refuse the warnings. Refuse the word. Refuse the prophet. Refuse the invitation. Refuse the invitation every day and every week and every month and every year. Refuse, refuse, refuse to come to a right relationship with God in Christ. Refuse, refuse to recognize that sin is a difficulty and a huge problem. Refuse to believe that there's a satisfying solution to the problem of sin. Refuse. So what is rejected silver? Rejected silver is the dreg. It's the impurities. It's the melted and the remelted and the remelted and the remelted, hoping that something, hoping that something might be found that has even some sense of value. So, what's accepted gold? What's accepted silver? It's the heart that says, 
I have absolutely nothing to offer you, God, except for this reality. I understand my sins are an abomination and I understand that my rebellion is a huge problem. And I understand that Jesus is willing to save me and forgive me and have me. You have to understand something. The impurity, the corruption, the hardness of heart towards God, the repeated refusal to repent. Listen carefully. Forced God to reject them. This isn't a situation where God is up in heaven going. Unacceptable, 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 unacceptable. This is God in heaven going, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. I'll even take you, I'll take you. I know no one's more shocked than me. I'll take you. I'll have you. I'll have you. I'll have you. This is what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, all you are heavy laden and full of a burden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. In Jeremiah, they wouldn't listen. Despite the repeated discipline, despite the repeated warnings. And by the way, if you've ever read Jeremiah chapter 36, in verse 29, it says, and you shall say to Jehoiachim, the king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out in the heat of the day and in the frost of the night. You may not understand it yet, but when we get to this particular chapter, it was because Jehoiakim took the first six chapters of Jeremiah, which we've just gone over. Jehoiakim read the first six chapters of Jeremiah. And you know what he did? He rolled up the scroll and he burned it in the fire. The last thing that he read was Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 30. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. And he rolled up the scroll and he tossed it in the flame because if he could burn the scroll and he could burn the words that maybe the prophecy and the judgment wouldn't really happen. And sometimes that's exactly what we do with our Bible. We close it. We put it on the shelf. And we try to forget all of what the New Testament says. That we're sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And that if we'll turn from our sin and our unbelief and we'll accept him as Lord and Savior, he will come into our hearts and he will change us and he will accept us. And then he will prepare us for eternity. But for some people, they just simply don't believe that that's true. Rodney Gypsy Smith, who was a great evangelist who conducted crusades and campaigns, he he was a member of the Salvation Army and a contemporary of Fanny Crosby and G. Campbell Morgan. And he told the story of a group of gypsies who were forced to cross a very swollen river and a great number of them drowned. And one young man made a desperate attempt to save his own mother. 
And she kept clinging to him for life. And several times he pushed her away saying, let go, mother. I can save you. Let go, mother. I can save you. But either she was too afraid to let go. She was too scared. She was frozen in fear. Who knows what happened? But she couldn't hear what her son had to say. And she was lost. And at the funeral, her son stood by her mother's grave. And she, he just said over and over again, I tried to save you, mother. I tried to save you. I tried to save you, but you wouldn't let me. That's the same heart and that's the same sentiment that Jesus has in the New Testament when he weeps over Jerusalem. And he said, I came to you like a mother hen protects her chicks. I, I came to you offering you grace and mercy and salvation and redemption, but you wouldn't let me. The Lord has made every effort to save Judah and Jerusalem. But they simply wouldn't let him. The Lord repeatedly tries to get us to turn from our sins. But for reasons that I don't understand, there are people who just say, no, no, thank you. They won't let go. They won't let go of this world. They won't let go of its sin. They won't let go of its false promises. They won't let go of their fear. They won't let go of their pride. They won't let go of whatever they think that is keeping them alive when in fact it's going to result in their death and judgment. That's what Jesus meant in the New Testament, when he reads Jeremiah chapter 6, and he says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You want to be redeemed? You want rest? I'll do it. It's not plagiarism when you wrote it. <laughs> and Jesus prepared the message centuries before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what will it take? What will it take? What will it take for people to wake up? Lord, what will it take for them to turn from their unbelief and their sin? What will it take so that people don't have to experience a time of separation, distance from Jesus? Heavenly Father, I pray for that man or that woman who is here tonight and they need to know you and they don't. Lord, I pray that even now you will once again issue that invitation. It's not too late. Turn from your sin. Embrace the Savior. Lord, for the Christian who's been living a life of rebellion and disobedience, of distance from you, flirting with the world and refusing to fulfill the gifts and callings that you placed on their life. Lord, I pray that they would turn again from their sin and that, that Lord, they, that you would remind them that you're willing to take them back, that you love them, that you're prepared to forgive them. You're prepared to restore them. 
that all they have to do is just to remember from where they've fallen and return and do the first things. Fall in love with Jesus all over again. Fall in love with his word all over again. Fall in love with the promises of God. And if that's you, I pray that that's exactly what you will do. That you'll turn from your sin. You'll turn to the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.